Lord of resurrection life. We confess that life after death is one of those things that's really hard for us to wrap our brain around. It brings questions and confusion and sometimes doubt. Sometimes we're afraid to hope for too much, to believe that something this good could actually be true. And so today we recognize first that if resurrection is real, and if it is ever possible, it is only because you make it so. It is not something that we can dream up, certainly not something that we can make happen. It is only something that we can receive. And so we ask that in your goodness, in your power, in your mercy, you who are about making all things new, you who have made all things new for our friend Jared, would you also give us this gift? We don't have to understand it. We don't even have to expect it. Would you surprise us and make all things new in us? We are here because we want something and we trust you, our good God. And so we wait, we listen, and we are ready to receive. And we pray that you would make us receptive, willing, ready for the gift of resurrection that you want to give us. And we ask this in the powerful and strong name and spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to greet you in the strong and powerful name of our risen Lord. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors. And uh, the reason I'm here is because, like my friend Jared, I am in need of resurrection. And uh, maybe that is the case for you as well. I, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John is very different than his partners, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And if you don't have a Bible, I have some friends who have Bibles. They'd love to lend you one. Just raise your hand. Somebody will give you a Bible. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. If you don't own a Bible, you can have this. It's our gift to you. If you just need it for the morning, you can, uh, you can just leave it on your uh, seat at the conclusion of our service and somebody will pick it up. If you, uh, if you want to, if you want to read in Spanish, we have Spanish Bibles as well. And so just have somebody give you one. But I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word from John chapter 20, starting with verse one. So hear the gospel for us this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we do not know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. 
Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noted, noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth had, that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of, of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there, but it was Jesus. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. This is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say together, thanks be to God. You, you may be seated. For the third night in a row... She didn't do anything but toss and turn. A stiff drink, maybe, a sleep aid, a little melatonin may have helped, but maybe not. Those are the things that can be bought over the counter or prescribed just after the copay is met. All you got to do is come of age. 21 makes you an adult, they say, but the adult world is, is just so, it's just so darn hard to navigate. It's complex, and it's violent, it's unfair, and never do the ends seem to meet. Early in the dark of this morning, uh, literally this morning here in 2019, all over the world, in every language and in every country, people were staring at their ceilings from their, their beds or their bunks, their cots or their mats, or they were staring at the sky from their foxholes or the sidewalk or the park bench. In the dark of the early morning, there are times when there are, there are times when we just wonder what's going to happen next. We lay there asking that question. And after we consider another pill, or we consider, we then consider a psychiatrist, or maybe even a priest, because we're longing for somebody to just give us some relief. And then when we do begin to doze off, it's, it's like we're awake and it's like we're awake and our dreams become vivid images of our tortured psychological, emotional, and spiritual selves. Those nights are kind of hard. Those nights where we, we circle around with the whys and the what went wrongs, they all connect to one another there in the dark. And I imagine that is why Mary was up so early. She had seen the crucified Christ. He was buried. And I'm sure she began to ask, why did this happen? Why did it end like this? Why couldn't it have gone another way? What went wrong? Should I have said something? Did I make a mistake? Could I have stopped it? There are lots of times in the in the early mornings, lots of early morning uh, times when you're awake, they, they lead to early morning walks. And I suspect that is what Mary was doing when she, 
she found herself in the place where she thought it all ended, the tomb. I mean, this makes sense. I suppose this is where she would feel most comfortable in her grief-stricken state. She's among a community of corpses. When I was a little boy, uh, my mama and papa Jackson lived in this really old house across the street from a cemetery. And the, the cemetery was, you, you know, it was manicured, well manicured, and it was taken care of. It had nice flowers on display, and there was always the, the smell of fresh cut grass. And in a weird way, it was like a garden to be admired. Well, in the daytime, we would play at mama and papa Jackson's house, and the cemetery was nothing to be afraid of. But in the evening, when the sun, go, but one evening when the sun was going down, my parents took me to stay with Mamaw and Papa Jackson overnight. And as I peered across the street, when we got out of the car, I felt like I was standing in the front yard of the Adams family. This is a picture of their house for all you young people. What seemed so normal and even like this, this reverent beauty in the daytime was terrifying at night. And I wonder if Mary's dreams, I wonder if Mary's tortured dreams led her to that place of terror that night. Her grief was so deep that she felt like almost, she almost felt like she belonged there. Like the collection of corpses would would be the only one that would, they would be the only ones that would understand her plight. I imagine that she felt like death walking there in the dark of the early morning. But still, if the It's amazing because the story kind of gets worse. When Mary arrives there at the tomb, her grief reaches new heights, or it's probably more appropriate to say it it reaches new depths, because she discovers that the stone has been rolled rolled away, and grave robbers have taken the body of her teacher and friend. And I'm sure at that moment, the world stopped spinning for her. She's there, frozen in her tracks, realizing what has happened. Goosebumps cover her entire body as if she is in the middle of a horror picture. She slowly then backs away from the scene, trying not to make any noise, just in case the bad guys are still around. And finally, at the right moment, she makes a break for it, running towards the safety of her friend's and running for her life. Apparently her friends were up too. The insomnia may have been holding them up as well. The light must have been on in the house because she busts in and in a loss of breath and between tears she screams, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. It's like a nightmare that everyone is having all at the same time but nobody can wake up. Uh, that's, when, that's when John tells us that, that Peter and one of the disciples called the Beloved runs out the door and like a couple of heroes running towards a scene of a crime or, or maybe towards a massive fire, you got to wonder if they were running mindless, held o- up only by an anger and adrenaline. John tells us that the Beloved makes it there first, but he stops at the front of the tomb noticing that the strips that covered the corpse were still there. I'm not so sure Peter would have noticed any of those details, but the beloved sure did. His mind must have been working at full tilt to take it all in there in the morning. Finally, Peter rushes to the tomb, rushes into the tomb. Arriving there, he nearly knocks the beloved over as he bursts into the entrance. Who knows if he didn't see the beloved standing there, if if he just didn't care. It was still dark outside. But knowing Peter, I I think he 
probably burst into that place in a rage. He's never handled stressful situations before. Luke tells us that one time he tried to lop off the head of a Roman soldier with a sword like he was Robin Hood or something. He probably didn't notice the same details that the beloved did. He wasn't exactly a a detail guy. Will Willimon is one of my favorite preachers, and he says that in a text, a biblical text, or for that matter, anywhere in life, when you see something odd, you should start to pay attention because odd places are the clues that lead us to good news. So I'd like to point out something odd. It's interesting that the grave robbers left some items behind. Even if they, even if they didn't want them, you thought they'd take you thought they'd take everything so they wouldn't leave behind any evidence or, or, or maybe just because it's just kind of gross to, to handle a naked corpse. But the beloved notices, not, not only did they strip the body, but then they folded up everything really nice and neat. And there was a face cloth folded up and it was lying there separate from the rest. And this happens in the middle of all kinds of mystery and confusion. It's in this that John, the gospel writer, inserts this almost uh, almost unnoticeable little line in the text. He says the beloved took notice and he had this intuition. Something odd is happening. Hey, those clothes are folded. And he believed. There's no indication what the beloved believed. I, I suspect that that, that this is a little trick, a little literary trick that the gospel writer John does to try to pull us, the readers, into his text. It's like he's saying here, in the dark of the morning, we should start paying attention, recognizing that there are odd things happening and there is now reason to begin to believe. Well, after running like their lives are dependent on it, when the tomb was in, empty, these, the, finding that the tomb was empty, these two knuckleheads, then they're just like, John, excuse me, uh, the beloved and Peter just, just turn and leave and act as if their part in the play is done. And they leave Mary there, whom we now assume is all alone. They leave her at the entrance to the tomb and she's weeping. But strangely, there's your odd word, strangely we find out she's not alone. Because that's when two angels, strange, speak to her and they begin to ask her questions. And they say to her, why are you crying? Now, the angels are asking questions, but I got questions of my own when I read this text. Where'd those angels come from? The beloved looked into the tomb. He didn't report any angels. Peter goes into the tomb. He didn't report any angels. But they show up in the middle of the scene. It's like these two detached characters just walking into the middle of a Broadway show, completely disconnected from the scene. And they sit there without any explanation of who they are or how they got there. And what's stranger yet is that Mary doesn't seem too surprised that there are angels there. Or maybe she just doesn't care. Because she ends up treating these two angels like orderlies that are stripping the hospital bed where you were looking for somebody you loved. And she wants an explanation from them about the location of the body of Jesus of Nazareth. And and I want an explanation, but I'm too busy being curious about something else. Why couldn't the beloved and why couldn't Peter see those angels? Maybe. 
maybe it's because, just maybe, N.T. Wright is correct. And he says, sometimes angels can only be seen through tears. All of these little clues, all of these odd things, all these little weird inserts help us see that maybe for the first time that that what is most true about life or or death or what is most true about God or, or about Jesus is not always evident by the bright light of day. Before the angels can answer, the strange increases as Mary steps back and she bumps into a third person standing there in the dark of the morning who asks her the same question. Dear woman, why are you crying? And thinking that he's the gardener, she pleads with him. If you have taken him away, tell me so I can go get him. And that's when it happens. He says her name, Mary. And for the first time in the dark, the first time in the grief, the first time in the early morning, the first time for all these sleepless nights, it's for the first time that she can see clearly there in the dark. Tom Long tells the story of this little girl named Mary Ann Bird. She was born with a cleft palate and she had a disfigured face. Marianne carried way too much burden and shame for such a little person. She struggled walking as well as she had lopsided feet that caused her to waddle like a duck. It was easier, it was easy to spot her walking down the school hallway. Kids would yell at her, call her names, ask her why she cut her face. Life for Marianne was hard. Back in those days, teachers would do these random hearing checks there in the classroom, and each student would then be called up to the desk, and the teacher would whisper something in the student's ear, like, the sky is blue or the grass is green, and the student would have to repeat it. And Mary dreaded this text. Not only did she have to walk up to the desk in the front of the class in front of all her peers, but she was already deaf in one ear, and she knew she was going to fail at least half the test. So she received the shock of her life when she heard her teacher whisper into her good ear, Marianne Bird, I wish you were my daughter. There in the dark of the early morning, there in the dark of her grief, there in the dark of her memories, there in the dark, it all becomes clear. Mary hears her name. I've come to the conclusion that it's only in real life, having real conversations and in real death where we just might bump into the living God and God is embodied in the resurrected Christ. In so many places of scripture, darkness is this theme that describes being separated from God, separated from life or hope or joy or peace or love. Darkness in the Bible seems to be confusing and hard and evil. But there are these other places in scripture that evoke a more rich idea. And that is this, the darkness holds the very presence of the living God. You've heard it before. The psalmist says, if I go to the highest mountains, you are there. And if I go to the depths of the valley, you are there. The first one in history, Mary, to experience the resurrected Christ, that happened in the darkness. What happens in the dark hours of the morning is both dangerous and it is divine. 
Those early can't sleep mornings, they do contain the horrors of our lives. But because it's hard to see in the dark, we forget to adjust our eyes and recognize that the darkness also contains the very presence of the living God among whom there are no others. St. Gregory of Nyssa was the first to notice that the cloud Moses stood in was a way to view our life with God. St. Gregory said that Moses, that God spoke to Moses in the cloud. And as, as Moses went higher and higher up the mountain, the more the cloud enveloped him. And that's where he saw God in the darkness. In the same way, Gregory says, those who wish to draw near to God should not be surprised when our vision goes cloudy. For this is the sign that we are, that we are approaching the opaque splendor of God. Barbara Brown Taylor says it this way, God exists in complete and dazzling darkness. People who talk about the resurrected Christ or who have been awakened by his voice Or those who say, like Mary, I have seen the Lord, often talk about it happening in the darkness. I've always been curious of those kinds of people with those kinds of stories. Some people walk through very difficult situations and still find a place of hope. A struggling divorcee wonders when the next shoe is going to drop, but she finds herself leaning deep into the love of the resurrected Christ. He comforts her, meets her needs, celebrates her as his daughter, names her saint, a name that comes complete with promises of her own resurrection. An alcoholic that reaches rock bottom and finds finds that indeed the higher power he's been ignoring all along has actually been on his side. A transgender teenager kicked out of, out of her house and has been living on the streets finds safety in the arms of the resurrected Christ who is embodied in her grandmother. And her first Eucharistic meal comes when she discovers she's free to go to the refrigerator for however much she wants, whenever she wants it. A son rejected by his dad backs into the resurrected Christ by finding his way into a new family celebrated in the adoption uh, that this that this group of people call baptism and not only does this community welcome him into their lives but then they realize just how wonderful he is to this community and how much they were needing him all along watch out for these baptized folks they're they're the ones with stories of an encounter with the resurrected christ in the early morning hours of darkness there have been times When I have backed into the resurrected Christ, and most of those were dark early morning moments when it was difficult for me to see and recognize him. I I really understand what Frederick Buechner means when he says that Mary found herself in the morning having a hard time what she was seeing. Uh, Holly and I got married when we were just 21 years old. That was dumb. It was really dumb. We were too young. We, we spent four years dating, and she had me captured from the very beginning. But it took nearly all four years before she decided that I was all right. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, I, I wasn't all right. In my shortened vocabulary, it keeps me from being able to describe what probably poets and writers and, and songs can describe it, it keeps me from being able to describe the pain that was in me and so I can only squeak out single words broken 
hurt, worried, lost, confused. Frankly, my life was a state of disbelief and it was a state of darkness. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think I wanted to believe. I, I just didn't. And I didn't even know which direction really to believe. Fear consumed me. I, I felt a strange cloud over me. I just, I just couldn't see well. Some professionals would probably say it was depression, and I think that they were probably right. That was probably the case, but, but I think that there was more. I needed some sort of light to guide me. I needed some sort of an awakening, some sort of answer. The way that I would frame it is this. I lacked belief, and I guess I was just losing hope. And it started, hope started to trickle away from my life, and I found that I, found that I was hollow, kind of like an empty tomb. I tried to fill it, and the fastest thing I could fill it with and I could replace it with was anger. And while I was angry, um, I, still while I was angry, I was sincere, so I sought out help. I, I talked with friends and professors and teachers, and I even went to church. At one point, I talked to a pastor. That was a mistake. That's funny, but it was a mistake. One day we were riding in his car together, and in my desperation, I just blurted out, I just don't think I believe anymore. Well, he pulled his car over, and he started to talk to me. Actually, he started to preach at me, and then things got really intense. Intense. He launched into, he launched into an apologetical argument, a treatise attempting to convince me through rational argument why certain doctrines need to be believed, while he pointed his finger at me, suggesting strongly that I needed to make a confession. Now, otherwise, for my life, it was doom. But the only thing I could confess was his speech didn't help me. It actually took me deeper into disbelief. Call it immaturity. Some would call it immaturity. Some would call it smarts. But whatever it was, I just couldn't rationalize it. I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out, make heads or tails of it all. And I identify with Mary. It was dark. It was early. It was difficult for me to wake up to my own life to figure out what it all meant. And it seemed like there was no solid ground to stand on. I, I felt so strange because I sincerely wanted, wanted something, but I didn't know what that was. I had this deep sense of longing for something more tangible, that I, that I, but I believed it wasn't there. I, I wanted to hold on to something like what Mary wanted to hold on to, like when she wanted to hold on to Jesus, but he wouldn't let her. I needed something that I could be secure in that would hold me back. I had a longing, but I, but I couldn't put anything together that was satisfying. My heart wanted something that my brain didn't think was real. And even so, my heart, even though my heart wanted it, my heart was still confused because it held anger, lots and lots of anger. And I was a mess. The metaphor of the empty tomb is the best way to describe me. If someone would have looked inside, they would have found something cold, a damp cave, hollow even. Anyone who does any spelunking knows that there's, there's nothing pleasant about a cave. The sounds, the confusing, the, the confusion, the cold, the darkness, the claustrophobia. I, I fit well with Mary and the community of corpses she visited that morning. Eventually, my unbelief turned to despair, and I was willing to do whatever it took. And I found myself at this old-fashioned camp meeting. Those things are kind of weird. I don't know if you know that. This old-fashioned camp meeting. 
the summer after Holly and I got married. And I remember sitting in those old pews, feeling like I was sticking out like a sore thumb, considering that if I didn't find any, any answers that night, then that, this was going to be my last-ditch effort. And while I don't remember all that the preacher said, I do remember feeling so tired like I hadn't slept in months. So tired, in fact, that I didn't even care if I believed or I couldn't believe. I just knew that I wanted to believe. So, so after he was done preaching, I just walked down to the front. There was an altar, and they had these kneeling benches where you could go to pray. So I, I knelt there, and I closed my eyes, and I, I tried to pray. And I, I remember praying as it was like I was throwing up a, a Hail Mary. And I said it this way. I don't know how it happens, or if it happens, but if it does happen, I want it to happen to me. Just about that time, this good old boy with a long draw and gigantic ears knelt down next to me, and he said at a decibel that made every hearing aid in the room ring, and there were lots of hearing aids in the room that night, he, made, he just started yelling at me, Son, do you feel like the Lord is talking to you? Are you ready to give your life over to Him fully? Can I pray with you? Well, I, that made me mad. And I looked at him, and I put up my hand, and I said to him, Sir, I need some time alone. If you would allow me to have a moment by myself, I'd appreciate it. And with that, this old guy completely ignored what I said, and he began to shout in my ear the loudest prayer anyone has ever prayed before as he beat me on my back. And I remember this fully. I continued with that prayer. I said, God, whatever I just said, I take it back because I hate this guy. But you know what? It was too late. I had already prayed the prayer. And when I prayed the prayer, back right into the resurrected Christ who was going to meet me no matter what. And while that man screamed at me, I heard a confirming whisper of love. It was my name. It was like... Christ bursting forth out of his tomb so he could take the dead like me by the hand and pull me out of my own tomb. This text is brilliant. It reminds us that Easter does not begin when it's daytime. Easter begins in the very early of the morning while it is still dark. And I think the reason the resurrected Christ finds us in the dark is because he's just so good. He just realizes that when it's light, if he came to us in the light, well, well then that's when the soul runs for cover. This is a spectacular story because it leaves room for all kinds of people. It leaves room for the ones who see and believe, the ones who are uncertain, and it leaves one for the it leaves room for the one who needs help in hearing her own name. Early in the dark of the morning, when she thought she was going to the place where it was coming to a horrible finish, she unknowingly backs into the resurrected Christ and finds that there is an empty tomb. And there in the dark, in that place, it's not where everything is finished. It's where everything begins new. She says, I have seen the Lord, and so have we. Amen. 
you know, each week we invite you to the Lord's table to remember this resurrection story. Each Sunday we gather, and we gather on Sundays on purpose. Because Easter is a continuing event. The resurrected Christ did not just come back to life. He was not just resuscitated. But instead, God brings him to life. And in doing so, he brings us to life as well. And so one of the ways in which we remind ourselves of this story is that we come to this table called the Lord's table. When we look at the cross, we see an invitation to participate in the way of Jesus. And we receive an invitation to trust this God who can turn our lives around. Each week we're invited to this Lord's table and are reminded that we are invited to participate in resurrection. We are invited to participate in a story that is very real and tangible, a new reality, a bold statement that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ has promised to come again. In his generosity and in his goodness, Jesus on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, at dinner, took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he reminded his disciples what he did for them. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup of wine, and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise that comes in my blood. It has been poured out for you, and whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. It is at this table we don't remember that just we don't we don't just remember that Christ has died, but we remember that Christ has been resurrected, and we are constantly invited to be resurrected with Him. All who are open to this transforming work of Christ are welcome, and you are welcome to this community. Everyone who is open to believe these good words and wants to receive this grace, this saving grace that comes from God, is welcome to this table. Here is where we live in the tension, and I tell you this every single week. We follow the one who was the victim of this world and also says to his friends, do not worry, I have overcome it. We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. I invite you to exit the left side of your row, move down one of our aisles with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here, we receive it. Because this is a gift. So allow one of these to say words to you and listen to what they say. Then when you've heard what they've said, dip the bread into the cup and then eat it. If for any reason you're unable to come down our aisle, we invite you to just wave at Justin and he would love to come serve you. This is good news for us, friends. On this Resurrection Sunday, I invite you to come to the Lord's table.